It's great to see you. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in uh, Luke, parables and Luke stories that, Luke, uh, that Jesus told. I have to say, tonight's sermon I find uh, difficult to preach for a whole load of reasons. But difficult mainly because I don't want to be hypocritical. And I have to say that as I prepared to preach it, I was thinking, this is what I should say. But if I'm honest with myself... I'm not doing it. I'm not living like this. Uh, and it's all about the return of Christ tonight and how the return of Jesus should shape your every moment of every day. And I can't say with a hand on my heart that the return of Jesus Christ does totally shape what I am and who I do, what I do. It's one of the sermons where I, I know it's right and I want to do it, but I'm not necessarily doing it. And so if, like me, that is you, when I pray that by the end of today, we'd actually have the return of Jesus kind of just blazed onto our mind. Let me pray. Father, we we thank you that uh, Jesus will return. We thank you, Father, that you tell us that, and we want to be people that live in light of that. Uh, Forgive us when we don't, Lord. And so through your word tonight and by your spirit, would you teach us and would you excite us and would you challenge us? And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. On the screen is a a picture of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a pastor in the 1700s. He was a great evangelist, a great teacher. He preached to the thousands. Uh, And one day someone asked George Whitfield this question. He said, Mr. Whitfield, how would you spend your day if you knew Christ was coming again tonight? It's a great question, isn't it? How would you spend your day if you knew Christ was coming tonight? I don't know how you'd answer that question. How would you answer that question? How how would you spend the next few hours if you knew that Jesus was coming back tonight? This is what George Whitfield said. He took out his diary, or his calendar. He said, well, at 8.30 this morning, I'm meeting with Mr. X to read the Bible and pray. At 11 a.m. this morning, I'm preaching. And at 3 p.m., I'm visiting the sick. So I'd spend my day just like that if I knew Christ was coming tonight. No change. That's bold, isn't it? It's an extraordinary statement. What what he's saying is that if I knew that Christ was coming tonight, I wouldn't change a thing. I am living today as though Christ was coming tonight. I am shaping my life and who I see and what I do as if Jesus could come tonight. Could you say that? No change. If I know that Jesus was coming tonight, no change to the way I spend my time today. No no change to the way I spend my money today. No change to the people I see today or the relationships I build today. No change. Because I'm living my life today as if Christ were coming tonight. It's challenging, isn't it? And what it's saying is that the return of Jesus Christ, it should shape everything about us, shouldn't it? Our world is searching for for meaning, aren't they? Our world is searching for basic questions like what's the purpose of life and who are we and where are we heading? But we know the answers to that, don't we? 
If we're Christians, you know the answers to those most meaningful questions of life. We've got the doctrine of creation, haven't we? That, that God is our creator. He's our good, good father who has created us. So we, as human beings, were made to know God and to be loved by God. That's what it means to be human. We know who we are. That should shape us. And we've got the doctrine of the incarnation when God in his kindness takes on flesh and steps into our world and reveals who God is. And that should shape us, shouldn't it? And we've got the doctrine of the cross and the resurrection when when God in his incredible mercy kills himself on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven, that you and I could know how loved we are, that we're reconciled to God. And that's got to shape us. And I think sometimes the, the, the creation shapes us and the incarnation shapes us and the cross shapes us. But the, the return of Jesus, it kind of just drops off our radar. When was the last time you thought about the return of Jesus? Has the return of Christ shaped anything you've done in the last week? Now, we know that the history of this world is not cyclical. It is linear. We're heading to an end point. The end point is when Jesus Christ returns with the blazing angel and the trumpet call of God. And I hope you know that. I think sometimes as Christians we are kind of obsessed with the uh, the how. You know, we draw pictures and we have diagrams of the rapture and the trumpet call. What's it going to sound like? The Bible has less emphasis on the the how and and the when, and just the fact is the primary important thing. The most important thing is that you believe that the Son of Man is coming. See that in verse 40? The Son of Man is coming again. There'll be a point in history where Every human being has a face-to-face encounter with, with the risen, ascended, returning Lord Jesus Christ. So are you, are you convinced by that, that Jesus Christ will return again? If you're not, here's some Bible verses for you. Acts chapter 1, verse 10, talking about the ascension. While Jesus was, was going, was ascending, the disciples were gazing into heaven. And suddenly two men in white appeared and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died, we believe that. And Jesus rose again, we believe that. Well, in the same way, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the archangel's voice and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, how about Matthew 24, verse 36? Concerning the day and the hour that Christ will return, no one knows. Not the angels, nor the Son himself, only the Father. That reality has got to shape us. It's almost like you've got this this certain event that's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. It's a certainty. You just don't know when. And living with that tension of the uncertainty about a certainty, it's got to change the way that you live today. So my big question is this. Are you ready? 
Are you personally ready for the return of Jesus Christ? That's the command in this passage in verse 35 and verse 40. It's like, a, like the beginning and the end of that chunk, the inclusio. Be ready, he says, verse 35. Verse 40, you also be ready, be prepared. And we use that phrase all the time, don't we? Be ready. When was the last time someone said to you, if you're not ready in the next five minutes, I'm going without you. Now, be ready. I'm coming around in half an hour's time, so be ready. I, I don't want you there still doing your hair or getting dressed or putting your shoes on. Be ready. That's what it means, you're prepared. It just struck me that we, we spend all our energy preparing for all these insignificant events in our life. We prepare for a dinner party, we prepare for a party, we prepare for work, but we don't prepare for the return of Christ. Are you ready? Has the return of Jesus so gripped you and persuaded you that it actually shapes the way you live today? Two ways to be ready. Here's the first one. You be alert and you watch for the return of Jesus. That's the language of verse 37. See that word alert? The slaves, the master finds alert when he comes will be blessed. Or verse 38, if he, if he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, those slaves are blessed. Uh, that word alert is kind of like they, they are watching and they are waiting and they are longing and they're looking. It's, you know, it's a picture of you know, the, the two grandchildren waiting for the grandparents to arrive and their noses are pressed against the window and they're looking and they're waiting. Yes, they're coming and they're ready. And Jesus uses two images of what it means to be alert. They're both in verse 35. He says, firstly, be ready for service. If you look to your footnote, literally, let your loins be girded. What on earth does that mean? Let your loins be girded. It's language taken from Exodus. When God said to his people, tuck your cloak into your waist and make sure you've got your sandals on, your staff in your hands so you're ready to leave. Your loins are girded. It's, it's a picture of the, of the of biblical times where the people wear these long tunics. So to have your loins girded means you take your tunic and you tuck it into your waist so you're ready to run, you're ready to work, you're ready for action. Put on your running shoes, get ready to go. Are you ready? Uh, the second image is in verse 35 of have your lamps lit. We don't get that one because, you know, we flick a switch and the lights come on. No electricity, no street lamps, no city lamps, no light lights. They had lamps. They had hand lamps, clay pots with olive oil in it and a wick in there. And to keep your lamps burning means you have to keep filling up the oil and keep trimming your wick. And what Jesus is saying there is that uh, you've got to make sure that your, your loins are girded, your lamps are lit, and you're ready for the master to return. We might say, you know, when you go to bed tonight, leave your clothes on, leave the lights on, so if someone knocks on the door at 2 a.m. in the morning, you can run downstairs and you're ready to meet them. You know, knock on the door at 2 a.m., you don't have time to have a shower and blow dry your hair and you know, get ready. When you open the door, they've gone. 
And when Jesus returns, are you ready? And the, and the illustration he uses in verse 36 is, is a wedding banquet and a master returning from the banquet. To, to understand this, you've got to understand that Jewish weddings would, would last for days and days and days. And so you'd never know when the master might return. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be three days' time, it could be 3 a.m., it could be 10 p.m., it could be midday, it could be 8 a.m. You just don't know. And so these slaves, these servants, needed to be alert, watching and waiting with their lamps burning and their loins girded. And so as soon as the master came home, they were there to meet him and greet him and serve him. And if the master came home and the lamps were out, by the time they'd filled up the oil and, and, and trimmed the wick, too late. Master's gone. So Jesus says, be alert, be ready, be focused, be disciplined, be diligent, don't get weary. Just live today waiting and watching. Waiting and watching. Now here's the problem, I hate waiting. I hate waiting. You know, I've been in Darwin. Guess how long I waited for a takeaway coffee? Eight minutes for a takeaway coffee. And I'm there going, oh, come on, I can make it myself. But the Bible says we, we are to wait. We're to wait patiently and to wait expectantly because Jesus is coming. You ever had dinner with a, a doctor who's on call? They're kind of there, but they're not there. <laughs> They're with you, but their phones are on because they're on call. It could go at any time. And as soon as that phone goes, they're out of there. That's kind of what we should be like living in this world. Like being a doctor on call. It could be tonight. And the illustration is brilliant down in verse 39. He talks about if the master comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn at 2 a.m. or 6 a.m. But we just don't know. Verse 39, if the house owner had known at what time the thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. That's the thing about thieves. Most thieves I know don't tell me when they're going to burgle a house, do they? When was the last time that a thief sent you a text message saying, Dear house owner, I'm going to burgle your house at 2 p.m. next Thursday. So you might find it convenient to go out for an hour or two and maybe leave the door open so I don't have to break anything. They don't do that. They want to take you by surprise. And the Bible says time and time and time again that, that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. You yourselves know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While the world is saying peace and security, we're okay then suddenly destruction will come on them. Or 2 Peter chapter 3, a great verse for our society today. Scoffers will come in the last days and they'll scoff, living according to their own desires, and they'll say, where's this coming? It's not going to happen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will be burned and the earth and the works will be disclosed. So we're supposed to be alert and be ready and watching and waiting, almost having the return of Jesus as like the backdrop of your life. A few things that struck me about this passage, this first passage. 
One is that constant alertness, the constant alertness. Girding your loins, keeping your lance lit. They were not one-off events. They're every hour of every minute making sure you're ready. You and I can't say, you know, me personally, you know, I, I was converted back in 1990. I was baptized back in 1991. So, you know, I'm now ready. 25 years ago, I was ready. It's that constant that today I wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm ready for the return of Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you again. At any point in the last seven days, has the reality of the return of Jesus, has that shaped you at all? Has it changed one single conversation? One decision that you have made? One relationship that you've invest, invested in? That's why it's challenging for me, because until I started to prepare this sermon, I think the answer for me was no. So it's a constant preparation, that constant alertness. Uh, the second thing that, that just struck me is, was the need for conversion. Now, you cannot be ready if you're not converted. Until a man or a woman turns to Jesus in repentance and faith, they are not ready to meet Jesus, are they? Until somebody actually acknowledges their need for Jesus and says, I, I love you, Jesus, and thank you for dying for me, they're not ready to meet him, are they? And yet the crazy reality is that there are literally millions of people in this country who are not ready. Our world is not ready, are they? And that's why the, you know, the urgency of just sharing the good news and the joyous news that this life is not all there is. We're heading for a better world and God longs for us to be there. That's the urgency. Maybe that's you tonight. You're not ready. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you know you're not ready because you still haven't accepted Jesus. Tonight's a great night to do that. And then I was struck by the blessings of being ready. Do you spot that in verse 37? This is a shocking verse, extraordinary verse. Those slaves the master will find alert when he comes will be blessed. What's the blessing? I assure you, he, that's Jesus, will get ready and have them, the servants, recline at the table and then come and serve them. Now, how should that story end? The story should end with the master returning, the servants opening the door, and the servants saying to the master, welcome home, take a seat, relax, let me serve you a drink, let me wash your feet for you, let me serve you. And Jesus says, let's flip it on his head, if you're here as a servant of Christ tonight, when I return, I'm going to serve you. But of course, it shouldn't shock us because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that picture of the Son of Man, you know, washing the disciples' feet. That's the blessing. Being in the presence of our Savior, feasting with him, and him serving us. So are you ready? How do you know you're ready? It's my second point tonight. You know you're ready if you're active. That's the word used in the second part of our reading. Uh, Peter gets a bit uncomfortable. He says, Jesus, who are you talking to? Us or everyone? And Jesus doesn't answer his question, but he tells another parable and changes things slightly. He says, there's a faithful and sensible manager or steward that the master appoints or in charge of the household 
And the job of the manager or steward is to, to feed and to care for all the other servants. Now, what does he say in verse 43? That slave who, whose master finds him working when he comes will be rewarded. Now, that's not a verse for workaholics. That is not a verse to say, keep doing your secular work, work for 90 hours a week, and when Jesus returns, he'll say, oh, well done, you work so hard. What he's talking about there is those who are working for the Lord. I'm not not talking about paid Christian ministry. I'm just saying those people who are active in making sure that the decisions that they make and the choices that they make and the relationship they make and the conversation they have are actually helping to grow God's kingdom. And the challenge for us is this. If you thought the return of Christ was unpalatable, what I'm about to say is even more unpalatable. The Bible says when Christ returns, what's he going to come to do? He's going to come to judge. And his judgment will be perfect and fair and just and right because God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. And here's the scary bit that all our works will be brought to light. All our works will be brought to light. The good that we've done and the wrong that we have done, what we did for Jesus, what we failed to do for Jesus. Now, please hear me rightly. We are not saved by our works. You're not saved by your works. You're only saved by grace. You're only saved because of God's forgiveness in Christ. You're only saved because of what Christ has done for you. But that doesn't mean that our works won't be judged. And the principle of verse 48 is quite scary for us, I think. So it says, much will be required of everyone who has been given much. That's us, isn't it? We've got Bibles, we've got podcasts, we've got sermons, we've got hive groups, we've got all these opportunities to to know Jesus and to serve Jesus. And even more will be expected of the one who's been trusted with more. If I read that rightly, he's talking about those who have been put in positions of looking after other servants. Those who've been entrusted with the responsibility of leading and and teaching and and pastoring. James chapter 3, not everyone should assume to be teachers because they'll be judged more harshly. Hebrews chapter 13, on that last day you'll give an account for those that you have pastored, whether you've led them closer to Christ or further away from Christ. And what he's saying is that, is that if you've been given much, then that should actually transform you even more and totally change the way that you spend your time and your talents and your treasures. I find these very scary verses. I want you to imagine something. Imagine that your boss says to you tomorrow morning, okay, I'm going to say you're on a secondment. You're going to go to Singapore to work for the next five years. Just five years, then you're going to come back to Sydney. And just as a sweetener, I'm going to give you five times your salary. So off you go to Singapore, five times your salary, massive, massive wage. Do what you want over there. Just one catch. Whatever you spend over there, whatever you accumulate over there, you cannot bring back to Sydney with you in five years' time. Think about that. How would you spend your five years in Singapore? 
Would you buy a nice flashy house just to leave it over there? Would you accumulate lots and lots of stuff for your flashy house knowing that you couldn't take it with you back to Sydney? Would you buy a car? Would you even rent a car? Would you invest in people that would actually last beyond Singapore back in Sydney? That's the challenge, isn't it? When he says, find him working, it's kind of like, what are you working for? Relationships? Friendships? Does the return of Jesus transform your conversations and your wallet and your acts of service and your acts of kindness? Does it transform you? It gets even scarier in verse 45. He talks about these wicked servants or these wicked slaves. He says, if the slave says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Oh, Jesus is not coming back. Hasn't come back yet. And he starts to beat the male and female slaves. He starts to abuse people to get what he wants. He thinks, oh, look, let's just eat and drink and get drunk. Let's eat, drink and be merry. Let's just live life on this earth for me, my pleasure, without the the returgies on the radar. What's the consequence of that? Verse 46. Well, that slave's master will come on the day he doesn't expect him. At an hour he doesn't know. And he'll cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That is hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard to hear because he's talking about slaves. He's not talking about the unbeliever. He's not talking about the person who has never received Jesus. He's talking, I think, about the, what I call the fake believers. It's all fake. There's no real relationship with the master. They're not really living any way for him at all. And we kind of read the parable and we say, oh, and I cut him into pieces. Oh, thank goodness it's just a parable. But actually, the Bible talks about hell. Even worse than that is a place of eternal torment. It's possible to sit here and sing, and you know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ's righteousness, but not really to believe it. And the reality is that you know that by you're not living your life for Jesus at all. There's a group of what I call slack servants in verse 47. Lazy servants. Oh, they know their master. They know Jesus, but they don't prepare for his coming. They, they will get to heaven, but they'll be severely beaten, he says. It's kind of like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where you escape through the flames. You just about get in there. Mate, what's the least I can do to get into heaven? I think lots of people are like that, aren't they? I've got my ticket. Let's just hope I get there but I'm not going to actually show it at all in the way I live. I think there's the ignorant people in verse 48 who didn't know. They had no idea that Jesus was coming again. But I I think we're in the second half of verse 48, most of us here. We have heard, we have believed, we've been given much. We've been given biblical knowledge, we've been given Bible studies and sermons and Bibles in our houses. We've given opportunities to serve Opportunities to grow, and so much will be expected of us. So I'll ask you again, is the return of Christ shaping your calendar, your wallet, your relationships, your speech, 
just, just affecting the whole of your being. There's a story of a, um, of a gardener in Italy, and he was cultivating the most beautiful, meticulous gardens you've ever seen. And it's a true story. Uh, and this tourist saw these gardens and went, wow, these are amazing gardens. You must work so hard. You must work so hard to maintain these. He said, oh, I do. I work really hard. Oh, your master, your boss must love them. Oh, my boss lives overseas. He's lived overseas for the last 40 years. He hasn't seen them. Well, why do you bother working so hard every day to maintain them? Oh, because he could come back today. And I want to make sure that when he does come back, they're meticulous for him. That's why I work so hard every day. And isn't that what Jesus says to us? He could come back today or in 40 years' time. Or in a thousand years' time. But every day we've got here on earth is a day to serve him. A day to love him. A day to adore him. A day to honor him. And a day to serve him. So are you ready? Are you really ready? Now do you see why this sermon is a whole of me to preach? I don't think that I have been living with that return shaping everything that I do. I'll end with George Whitfield's word again. How would you spend your day today if you knew Christ was coming again tonight? Let me pray. Father God, we pray that you would make us men and women who are so shaped by that reality. Lord, I pray that it would shape our diaries and our priorities and our decisions and our choices and our words and our relationships and our money and our acts of service and our acts of kindness. Lord, I pray that we will be the people who are saying, yeah, we want Jesus to return. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.